This is the Skin in the Game VC podcast, hosted by Tom Wallace, entrepreneur turned venture capitalist and the managing partner at Florida Funders. You'll learn from the best about investing in early stage tech companies, so you too can gain the confidence and find the tools that help you succeed as an angel investor. Are you ready to get some skin in the game? I welcome you to another version of Skin in the Game, our podcast from Florida Funders. Uh, if you're not familiar with Florida Funders, we're a hybrid between a venture capital firm and a network of angel investors. We have about 2,000 investors that invest alongside our funds. We focused on early stage tech investing and uh, PitchBook and CB Insights named us the most active venture capitalist in the Southeast last year and in Florida. Our goal with this podcast, Skin in the Game, we call it Skin in the Game because we invest right alongside our investors. And uh, so that's how we always have skin in the game in every company that we invest in. And our goal with this podcast, podcast, with our podcast, is really to educate, inspire, and activate early stage tech investors. Um, I would say what could be more fun? You know, we, we get to go to work every day and meet people that are trying to change the world and, and uh, hardworking young people. And it, it's so much fun and so exciting. It's a lot more fun than playing the stock market, I'll tell you that. So um, a couple other things. We, uh, uh, oh, I, I'm going to introduce our guest here in a second. We have a lot of guests, different guests that we have on from time to time. And our guest today is really uh, a rock star in the tech world. And you're going to meet him in a second. Uh, we typically have guests on that are either investors or founders or oftentimes both. So with that, I want to welcome Brad Feld. Uh, Brad Feld is the founder of Techstars. I'll let him tell you about that, as well as he's currently the partner at Foundry. He uh, has quite an extensive background in technology, been at this for three decades, and uh, is based in Boulder, Colorado, went to MIT. Um, so obviously a lot smarter than I am. And uh, he has been an active investor involved in the entrepreneurial community. He's written books. He's a blogger. He's a speaker. Uh, Brad, welcome. So, so excited to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I thought we'd start off by, um, you know, tell us a little bit about your journey. And did you grow up in Boulder? Are you from Colorado? I didn't. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I lived there till uh, I went to college. I went to college in Boston at MIT, lived in Boston for a dozen years. Uh, Boston was very good to me, uh, but it was not home. It never felt like home. Northeast never was like the place I wanted to live. Uh -huh. And my wife, Amy Bachelor, who we met in school, she went to college in Boston as well. Um, when I sold my first company, I was 28, and I told Amy that uh, by the time I was 30, we'd be out of Boston. And two months before I turned 30, she told me she was moving to Boulder and I could come with her. <laughs> uh, so we, we were married. So that was not a like boyfriend, girlfriend thing. That was uh, okay. Yep. Guess I'm going to Boulder. And we really, we came to Boulder pretty randomly. She's from Alaska um, and Northeast wasn't for her either. And uh, kind of, we figured if we didn't like Boulder, we'd just try something else. We'd been to Colorado a couple of times. She'd spent um, a summer here, you know, as a kid and, or a year here as a kid, I skied here a bunch yeah. and we were here six, six months after moving to Boulder. We're like, yep, this is home for, for the duration. We love it here. 
Well, it's a great place, and I want to come. I want to come back around on Boulder and talking about uh, COVID and post-COVID because I think there's a lot of analogies between that and Florida and, and what happened. Some and and as people moved out of uh, some of the other areas during COVID, but we'll get back to that. You sold. You said you sold your first company at the age of 28. What was your first first company? Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a very very creatively named company uh, called Feld Technologies. Uh, <laughs> joke that I named it after my dad. Um, and uh, it was, we started in 1987 and we sold it in 1993. And it was a time period where PCs, personal computers were starting to be used in business, but they still weren't really networked together. And they definitely weren't, there was no internet to connect them to in a commercial sense. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, software at the time, uh, PC-based software at the time was, eh, you know, for business applications or anything that was networked was pretty weak. The databases were starting to emerge. So you had products like DBase and mm -hmm. products that were starting to come out, but they were pretty weak sort of real applications. Yeah, but I remember. Starting to try to use personal computers for, for business applications. So we built a company that had, you know, hired real software engineers. You know, our team was, was uh, all people who really knew how to write software, but then we applied that to business problems and we built a, a bunch of custom software, different types of applications for small, medium-sized businesses. Um, and in that, we ended up having a couple of different categories of, of business types that we built software for. So instead of every time starting from scratch, we would build off of both the expertise and also in some cases, some pretty meaningful code bases that we'd used in other projects. So that was that was the first business. And did you, did you have a product or were you pretty much a, a software development shop? No, we were, we never really successfully had a product. We were a software development shop. That was our business. We tried several times to create um, actual products. Um, one of them, uh, and again, go back to the time frame, early 90s, uh, we were in Boston and the venture capital community in Boston was pretty significant, even, sure. you know, even back then. And it, it turned out that we ended up having a lot of customers who were VC firms. And uh, we ended up writing a couple of different types of products for them, but one of them was a portfolio management product. So, you know, prior to using our software, the way that most VC funds did their quarterly reports is they just entered all this shit into a spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, and, and, Can you, know, you imagine? <laughs> oh, horrible. So we wrote, you know, we wrote real application for that. And that ended up being used at a number of fairly substantial uh, venture firms a number of which, you know, nobody uses it today, yeah. but, you know, which used it for a long time. And if you said, well, what's an analogy to it in today's market, right? It it was a very poor functional equivalent of what Carta might do today for a venture capital firm. So yeah. we tried to spin that out. I, we have, I have a business plan somewhere still for something we called VentureSource, uh, which was, uh, sorry, VentureSoft, which was, uh, you know, software for venture capital firms. And mm -hmm. we ended up not uh, ever really having success with it as a separate business, but we ended up getting a lot of additional consulting work as a result of sort of having that focus on it. So we tried a few other product oriented things to try to turn them into separate products. But, you know, for us as a consulting business, it was always a trade-off between spending all of our time on the product and not getting paid for it or getting paid as consultants, you know, to build the software you know, for a particular company. And that 
That was a very hard trade-off. Yeah, I've, being I've a, seen that over the years uh, where companies are trying to be a services company and a product company. That's why I asked you about it. I've never seen there anybody you. execute on that really well. Either they end up going all product or they stick with services. It's hard to do both those things, I, I, right. I found. No, it's very hard. It's been, there are very, very few successes. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 do, I do have a couple of examples, including a couple of friends' companies who were able to transition from consulting to product-based companies. But yeah. it, takes, it takes real focus and commitment to do that. Yeah, I think Basecamp did that. But um, So you sell your company, you're 28, you move to Boulder. What next? What happened next? Well, uh, between 28 and between 20 and 30, I was, um, yeah, I worked for the company that bought mine. And I Who started did you making, sell to, Brad? I sold to a public company that ultimately was called Ameridata uh, Technologies, and they got bought by GE Capital um, in 1996. Okay. Um, so during that period of time, I worked for that company. They bought a bunch of companies. I'd never done any transactions, you know, buy, sell, or invest in anything. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being the technical guy on the deal team. So I got to work with the, the two guys who are the co-chairs of the company who were doing lots of acquisitions. Um, and so I, I learned a lot just by observing them and participating, you know, in what they were doing. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I took most of the money that I made from selling that first company. This is 1994, 95, 96 and invested in about uh, 40 companies as an angel. So about one a month. And wow. we, moved, we moved to Boulder in 1995. So it's kind of right in the middle of that was when I moved, but I was investing all across the US. I, was, I had a big network in Seattle because we'd done a lot of work with Microsoft in, in my first company. Um, you know, I grew up in Dallas, so I had network there. Boston, I'd lived in for a long time. New York, I had a network there. I had a network in the Bay Area. And so my angel investing activity was, was kind of everywhere. and. Um, you know, I, when I started, I'd never made an investment before. So I learned by doing, uh, -huh. uh along the way I ended up getting connected with, uh, this little known at the time, Japanese company called SoftBank, uh, <laughs> that was just starting to do stuff in the U S so yeah. bought a couple of companies, uh, Comdex probably being the most notable and maybe Zip Davis was also the most, no you know, equally notable, but they were very aggressively starting to invest in what at the time was called digital media companies. And there was a, a group, a very small group of people that were working for SoftBank that went looking for people to, to work with as affiliates um, to basically help them find deals. You know, the thing that today we might call a scout program. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what, what I was thinking of. And um, I started making investments where, you know, they would, I would invest my own money in the stuff that I found, but they would invest their money too in some of it. And, when those deals paid off, I got some economics on the money that they invested. And that was really my intro to venture capital. Did you meet uh, Masa Sun? Yeah, I met Masa a couple of times. I, I don't have a close relationship with him. I think Masa would still at this stage be able to pick me out of a lineup. But um, uh, I would say for the first couple of years, um, we were really the, the team that we ended up being, which then the group that we were part of that I was affiliated with uh, raised our own fund that SoftBank sponsored. Uh, and at that point, I became full-time uh, a full-time VC, but as part of the SoftBank investing activity in the U.S. For a while, we were the primary U.S. investing activity, and then that evolved uh -huh. uh, from there. But Masa was fascinating. And, you know, the 300-year vision he talks about uh, today, it's probably only a 280-year vision because 20 years ago, it was a 300-year vision. So. <laughs> 
And, um, you know, a lot of the activity, both positive and negative characteristics of the activity that we experienced in the internet bubble, were not that dissimilar to the dynamics of what's been going on the last couple of years here uh, in this part of the cycle. And, you know, one of my uh, one of my narrative jokes is that, you know, a lot of the stuff that we went through is, or that SoftBank's going through today is basically the same dynamic, just two more zeros at the end of every check. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the quantum of capital being a hundred times more, but. Yeah, it seems uh, like it's, I, I make that, you know, that connection with, it seems like the dot-com bust would, ha- would that happen in like 2000, it lasts a couple of years. seems to me like this crypto winter, winter, is kind of the same thing. It reminds me of that. I don't know it's going to come back and who can predict the future, but I, I do think, you know, Web3 is for real and I do think it'll come back. I just think it's going to take a couple of years like it did in 2000. What are your thoughts on that? I think what just happened in the last 12 months uh, and really a little bit longer because I think the peak was, from my frame of reference, the peak was really November uh, 2021. Um, is we really did go through and have gone through the same kind of, uh, not just in crypto, by the way, but across yeah. all of tech. Yes, uh, all cloud. Dynamics, the same dynamics that tech went through in the internet bubble, you know, with with valuations, public valuations, you know, getting re-rated by 50 to 75%, some cases, you know, 90% plus, you know, private markets, um, I think we're just now still at the earlier stages of the unwinding of what of so much overfunding. Um, and you know, things are blowing up in lots of different ways. Sometimes they blow up because there's no additional capital. Sometimes they blow up because there's fundamentally no underlying business. There have been a handful of cases so far that have been fraudulent, and there's going to be more that come that, you know, we're it's just very, very clear that the activity was uh was was fraudulent activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you you know, at the same time, a lot of this, this similar narratives existed. You know, the, the internet bubble really crested in the spring of 2000. And so 2000 was much like how I'd say the first half of maybe the first, you know, from from fall of 2021 to fall of 2022. Mm-hmm. Was kind of what things felt like spring of 2000 to spring of 2001. And in 2001, and maybe summer to that, like the time frame doesn't line up exactly. The narrative at the time, you heard a lot of things like if you've got a lot of capital, you'd be fine. You need to be capital efficient with your company. Um, you need to start to focus on the actual metrics of your business. There's lots of capital, dry powder on the sidelines. It's going to have to go into these companies. So there's going to be a lot of capital. Da, 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 da. But what changed then, which I think we are in the beginning of, is there was a real fundamental shift in 2001, 2002, 2003, and even into 2004 and 2005 around how capital was deployed and how companies uh, both grew and continued to not have access to capital and subsequently fail. So I, I think this year, I think 2023 will be a pretty rocky year. We we talk about it within Foundry as being murky. Like like we're not predicting, you know, what's going to happen. I like that, murky. We kind of don't have a fucking clue. Yeah. But 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 plan but plan not that oh yeah, well, you know, the crash is over and now everything's going to be fine again. And don't subscribe to the common narratives that everybody has, which is you should do this or you should do that. But instead as an entrepreneur, really focus on your business and understand 
you know, things like line of supply, like, you know, what kind of capital will you need? When will you need it? And where are you going to get it from? And if you're in a position where you don't need to get any additional capital, either from equity or, you know, any other sources because you're cash flow positive or you've raised a ton of money, you know, make sure that you're in a position where you get more capital well before you're in a position where you need more capital. Um, it's a bad time you know, to run out of money cash right now. Yeah. And, you know, you say, well, I got two years of capital because of how much I raised. That's fine. Um, you know, it, two years is good. Two years is better than one year. Um, but, you know, if you looked at the amount of capital that you raised, did you did you raise so much money that really 50 percent of the money you raised, you can just set aside and not even think about it and say, well, if I take half the money I raised, I've still got two years. Mm -hmm. Organize your business around building a much more durable business. I would say in the internet bubble, the companies that did that and really readjusted everything about how they thought about what they were doing against a very different kind of market dynamic were the ones that had a lot more agility to navigate their way through the next couple of years versus companies that don't create a situation where they have some agility to continually reevaluate re the environment. Just one other caveat on that less hard lessons learned from life is you know, many companies, and we're, you know, we're just into 2023. So people have set up their 12 month plan. You've got your 2023 plan. You know, it, it, you said, how accurate is your Q4 plan? If anybody says anything other than it's complete random number generator, <laughs> they're lying. Like, you know, there are so many things in our macro economy. There are so many things that are ripple through effects in different parts of our global economy. There are so many different things going on within just within technology, within local communities, within local yeah. geographies, many things people say, well, you know, the supply chain problem's over. Well, actually the supply chain problem's not over. If anything, it's gone the other direction. Now there's a massive oversupply of manufactured goods that are now coming, you know, into places that have normally been significant consumption regions like the US of those things. And so, you know, if you've got a massive oversupply of things and you've got inflation, uh, you know, that's theoretically driving prices up. Well, those things counterbalance and prices will actually come down for certain things because when you have a whole bunch of excess inventory, you don't want to carry that excess inventory because the cost of carrying all that ex excess inventory is higher. All of these things are things that if you're a startup, you say, great, Brad, yeah, but I don't care about any of that. Yeah, but it's going to make your customers harder to find and it's going to change the dynamic of what appropriate cost of going to market with different things are. It's going to change cost of labor, probably for the better, where it'll be less expensive to hire people. So all of these things, if you're planning on an annual basis, uh, you don't have to <laughs> care for any of this stuff. Nobody really you know, knows, right? <laughs> nobody really knows. And I like to joke in my first company, we didn't raise any money. So, you know, our planning horizon was like a day. Yeah. Um, it was really every two weeks we had to make payroll. And then, you know, we kind of had a monthly planning cycle and, you know, we would reflect on things at the end of a year. I, I think most startups, angel-backed, venture-backed companies, the right planning horizon here is to have a continual 12-month view that's forward-looking, but that you're really planning on a quarterly basis. So at the end of Q1, you know, in March, April, you're making a plan for April of 23 to the end of March 24. You know, so you're just kind of continuing to move that 12-month window but you're really concentrating on what the current reality of things are at March 31, how things went against what you thought they were going to go over the last month, the last quarter, 
and are able to continually adjust the rhythm of your That's business. That's the part I think so important, especially in cloud computing. We do a lot of SaaS investments. And I, the beauty of the SaaS model, and I ran a SaaS company for over a decade, is you can, you can adjust pretty rapidly, and, and, and particularly in terms of hiring. Like if you put together your hiring plan, to your point, if you don't make Q1, you don't make the hires in Q2 that you were planning on hiring. You know, you can dial that back. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think that's one of the advantages uh, of the SaaS business model that you, you can always invest less in sales and marketing, grow less. You can give up growth for profitability, right, or for cash flow. And I noticed that I, I think in one of the articles I read, you were talking about the rule of 40 percent. And, and it made me, made me think of that. Do you want to tell the audience what that is? Yeah, the rule of, rule of 40 is um, sort of the, uh, the threshold that now has become conventional wisdom. That is the, uh, the, the acceptable threshold for uh, uh, essentially a SaaS company. When you do the math of the two numbers being your growth rate plus uh, your growth rate percentage plus your EBITDA percentage. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're growing at 40%, you should be break even. If you're growing at 60%, you could lose 20%, uh, you know, on, on, on an EBITDA basis. If you're growing at 20%, you should be positive 20% on the EBITDA basis. If you're growing 100%, you could be minus 60% on an EBITDA basis. The the interesting challenge, I think, for a lot, there's two, two parts for SaaS companies where this is an interesting challenge. Um, one is for the last couple of years, uh, people have been prioritizing growth over everything else. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of other SaaS metrics where this shows up, right? A lot of people have talked about how, you know, the payback on uh, a dollar of, uh, let's say, I, I want a dollar of, uh, to acquire dollar growth, how much money should I spend and what should that payback period be? And it used to be that the payback period was like 12 to 18 months, and then it became 24 months, and then it became 36 months. And, you know, so what that did was allow people to spend more and more money for a dollar of ARR. If, I, if my payback period is three years, I'm willing to spend $3 for a dollar ARR. And um, that doesn't work. Yeah, and, I don't like those fact, numbers. <laughs> no, and in fact, what you, what you just saw in the public markets is a bunch of SaaS companies, including some that, you know, were extremely well regarded, their CAC has gone up so much that their payback period is now 10 years. So, you know, I'm paying $10 to get an incremental dollar of ARR. That doesn't work. Yeah. So then there's another part of it, which is so many companies based on the growth of tech and the number of tech startups and the growth of those companies, and then the adoption of multiple, you know, SaaS products, many SaaS products in these companies meant that net, you know, NDR, net dollar retention, once you had an existing customer was was meaningfully greater than 100%. We have companies in our portfolio where, you know, one year net dollar retention would be 150%. And some companies where two year net dollar retention was over 200%. Um, you know, so you get a compounding effect of the NDR. Well, if everybody's laying people off um, across all of industry mm -hmm. and, you know, they're looking to save costs, including within the technology industry, which is a big consumer of technology products. Sure. Many of SaaS companies are, you know, your NDR in 2023, um, pick your time unit is going to go, you know, from greater than 100 to less than 100, which means that you're now starting with a lower, you know, yes, it's predictable, but you're starting with a lower amount, yeah, uh, a starting point to get back to where you were before. And companies don't have the muscle for making this analysis. 
right? And management teams have been operating and financial plans operating under the assumption that NDR is greater than 120% and that da 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 When you start looking at these and say, what, what is an acceptable amount for me to be spending to get whatever growth I'm getting? Things like the rule of 40 are useful heuristics, especially at mid-size and scaled companies, just to give you a, a, a way to center uh, as, to, as to what an acceptable pace is. But more importantly, it's to recognize that a lot of the underlying assumptions that fueled spending money ahead of getting customers because of the compounding future value of those customers are now working against you in a lot of those companies. And there's lots of ways to adjust for that, but you know, the last however many years, four or five years, uh, maybe six years in the B2B SaaS world, there hasn't been a lot of focus on that. So I, I just warn people to, again, be aggressive on the front end and then be agile about how you adapt based on what's happening in your current reality. If you're finding your NDR is continuing to expand because your product is a must-have, and even if people are cutting headcount, they're getting you're getting more deployment within your existing customers, that's awesome. Yeah. But you're in a very different place. And if somebody whose product is not as much of a must-have, and I mean, I'll give you an example. We did analysis within our portfolio, and we looked at how much each of, uh, it's about 50 companies uh, participated, how much they were each spending on, you know, how many employees they had, how much they were spending on Google, Slack, and Zoom. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's a fourth category. There are a handful of companies that were were spending on Microsoft products, Office Team, you know, uh, Office 365. And the number of companies, if you looked at the efficiency curve, the number of companies that had chosen only one of those products and was only using one of them or paying for one of them, they might be using Zoom for free and using Google as its primary thing. Uh-huh. Uh, those companies had a much lower cost per employee um, by, in some cases, a factor of, you know, five to 10. I think the range was like 1200 bucks per month per employee. And the low end was like a hundred and something bucks per month per employee, um, you know, against, against those products. It's pretty dramatic. If you have 20 employees, who gives a shit? But if you have, um, uh, although it's still non-trivial, but if you, if you have 2000 employees, oh, yeah. Matters like it, tell me again why, why I, I'm using all these things. I think it even matters with some smaller companies. I mean, you look at Salesforce and look at you know how much money a, you know Salesforce starts out cheap as as I'm sure you know, and it goes up pretty rapidly per user. And before you know it, your Salesforce bill every quarter is 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 quite quite a chunk. Hey, uh, Brad, good. This is great stuff. And uh, I wanted to go back to you. I'm, I'm kind of curious on this personally because I've been an angel investor uh, going back several decades as well. You did 40 investments with the money you made from your first company. How did those turn out? Like it, that's a that's a really nice diversified portfolio, right? I mean, I think angel investors. We tell our investors, hey, do at least 10 or 15 deals, or you know, you're you're not diversified enough, and you, you're you're gonna you're you're not gonna maximize your potential returns. I'm Kind of curious on that. Yeah. So again, put it in time context, 94 to 96, it was kind of crazy for somebody to be doing, you know, yeah. that velocity of investments. Um, uh, and the way I looked at it, I'll tell how it turned out, but the way I looked at it was, um, uh, you know, I, I was going to invest the same amount of money in every company. And I ended up evolving a rule where I would sometimes invest that check again uh, in a company, if it had made progress but hadn't gotten to a place uh, where it could raise another round, and yeah. So, so you do follow-ons. 
but I was very quick to invest if the company needed another check at the same terms of my first check to get to that place where they had uh, the ability to raise money from additional investors. But then I didn't play my pro rata. I was I was an angel investor. I was done. And mm-hmm. so my cup size was $25,000. So um, I was very consistent. Uh, maybe 15 of the 40 companies, I, I ended up having 50 grand instead of 25 grand. Um, if you break down that portfolio, I had three companies of the 40. Each company by itself returned more than 100x. Wow. So if all the other 37 companies were zeros, I did, you did great. 20 of the companies were zeros. Okay. Uh, and the other 17 returned something to me. And I would say that the, probably the median of what I got from those other 17 was like 2x, not the average, the median. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take the tails off, I, you know, it was probably a 25x one and a 10x one and a handful between 5 and 10x. But most ended up being be, being between, you know, I got most of my money back and I doubled my money. And then there were some where I got, you know, a tenth of my money back or 20% back or something mm-hmm. like that. And essentially that group of 17 um, uh, roughly uh, returned the total capital that I'd invested. And then those three were the real significant outlying returns. Over what period of time? Three years. Three years. I mean, that was that was when I committed the capital. Is is uh, any of the hundred X? Would we recognize any of the three companies you hit hundred X on? So, um, one was uh, if anybody out there has ever played Guitar Hero or Rock Band, uh, it was a company called Harmonix, which is the company that uh, essentially, uh, uh, with one other, there's two companies that created Guitar Hero, them and another company called Red Octane. They then went their separate ways, and then Rock Band was. Uh, created by Harmonix. Um, and that's a good example. That company, I think I funded, it was a fifth company I funded as an angel was in the in the first five. I'm pretty sure it was the fifth one. Mm-hmm. And um, they tried they tried their hardest to go out of business every year for a decade <laughs> and, and just managed not to. But they, you know, for every year, they just somehow managed to stay alive. And then, you know, then they came out with Guitar Hero and it was a massive win. Um, another Another one that if people are old enough, they'll remember, uh, is a company called Critical Path. Um, Critical Path was, um, I think it was really the first email hosting business of scale. They were commercial email hosting versus like what Hotmail became where it was individual. Okay. But, you know, if you were a company and you wanted to host your internet email box online, they were, they were really the first and they grew very, very quickly. Um, uh, it was extremely successful business for a while. I think the peak market cap as a public company was about $5 billion when, you know, when that was a big number. Yeah. And, um, uh, in the end, um, they, they really struggled and they had some issues, but as an angel investor, like they went public and six months after going public, I, you know, I've, I've, I would say I now have a very consistent strategy for what I do at the time. It was a little more chaotic, but uh, uh, I would always sell a meaningful chunk of whatever I got once the lockup came off. So at least I had, uh, you know, some of the, some of the gains locked in. And mm-hmm. then I didn't have a formula in 2000 for what to do with the rest. But over time, I started to figure out and develop a formula for what to do with the rest. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Techstars. You were one of the co-founders of Techstars. And um, I'm guessing some of our 
audience, angel investors know of Techstars and probably some don't. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit about that and how you, how you got involved with Techstars and how that got going? Because Techstars, for anybody that doesn't know, is very well known. Y Combinator, Techstars, I mean, it's one of, one of the, the, the top incubators, accelerators and, and out there. So we started Techstars in 2006. Um, there were four founders, um, David Cohen, uh, who really came up with the idea. He had a business partner for many years in a prior company, a guy named David Brown, uh, then me, uh, and then a longtime friend of mine, uh, Jared Polis, who then became congressman. He was a very successful entrepreneur, became congressman for Colorado, and then is now our governor. Um, huh. And the the four of us started it just as a you know 2006 timeframe uh, was one where entrepreneurship was still very much on its back. You know the internet bubble hangover, whatever you want to describe it, hadn't sort of come back. Web two was starting to emerge, and there was starting to be some interesting stuff happening again. Obviously, in that time period, some really meaningful companies got created, um, but it was still you know sort of a very you know not not an important part front and center in what we we're doing and you know we were we all just wanted to get more involved in starting more companies so we ran a program uh in boulder that was an excel what today would be commonly called an accelerator program we funded uh 10 companies we the money was all our own money and kind of we didn't know whether it was a good idea or not we decided that our worst case is we'd make some new friends and we'd have some fun uh in boulder <laughs> that's the the key a key initial innovation that we had was we surrounded those companies with mentors uh, and we really created this concept of a mentorship driven accelerator. So we had about 50 mentors uh, in that first program. Where did you get the mentors? Well, the the internal joke became uh, for the people that remember Bill Clinton, there was a thing called FOB, which was friends of Bill's who were always sort of getting jobs and hanging around and being part of the yeah. administration for better or for worse. Um, here they were friends of Brad. So I reached out <laughs> to a bunch of friends, you know, entrepreneurs that I knew uh, in Boulder, but also that I knew on the West Coast and the East Coast. Um, uh, a handful of investors that were super early stage investors, including some that I was an LP in their funds and they were starting new funds to sort of get this next wave of entrepreneurship going. And uh, it was pretty amazing to have this experience where you know, we were involved in helping 10 companies get started, but also really reconnecting in a substantive and, and active way, this startup community, this group of people who cared about entrepreneurship, but had them doing things with each other rather than just coming to cocktail parties, right? Helping companies. Many of them became angel investors in those companies that they were mentors for. Mm -hmm. um, it sort of emerged from there. And when we started Techstars, we really had no vision of where it would go. Um, you know, today it's a global... Uh, a global activity we have as a company. Uh, I think we fund about 600 companies a year now. Wow. We're, we have 50 programs a year that we run. Uh, we have about a dozen program, a dozen companies per program. Uh, we're in 40 cities around the world, dozen continents. With no vision. <laughs> we had no vision at the beginning. I mean, that's look, incredible. The vision, the vision we had was we think entrepreneurship is really important. We think anybody should be able to be involved in entrepreneurship anywhere. Let's try to do it in Boulder, Colorado and make this a really substantive place where people can create companies. That was the vision. The outcome vision of what Techstars has turned into was not something that 
you know, we started with. Brad, I got to tell you, Techstars, I mean, for no vision, and, and, and I know it, it had to change over time, the, where you guys have taken that, what, what Techstars has grown into, uh, you know, all these cities, 600 companies a year. It's very, very impressive. Congratulations. Uh, I wanted to visit a little bit, you know, Florida, we really, and you're probably aware of this, benefited a lot from COVID. Our governor was very open. We really never shut down much as a state. Tons of people moved here from New York and San Francisco and all those places, both entrepreneurs and venture capitalists and private equity folks. And a lot of them have decided to stay. I'm curious, did you see similar uh, similar thing in Boulder and how 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 did COVID affect the, the Boulder tech ecosystem and where you're at? Yeah, I mean, the evolution for Boulder and for Denver uh, is uh, predates COVID significantly. So, you know, the, the, the arc's important to sort of get in the mix because uh, 2010, um, Boulder's a very small town. Boulder's 100,000 people. Mm -hmm. And Boulder, Boulder County is only a quarter of a million people. Just for comparison, yeah. uh, Denver is sort of the area immediately around Denver is about two and a half million people. And Boulder and Denver are about 30 minutes apart by car, maybe 45 if there's some traffic. And so the important thing to recognize in that is in 2010, uh, Boulder's about the tenth, a tenth the size of Denver. But by 2010 already, we probably have more startups in Boulder than we have in Denver, at least by a factor of two, maybe more. Wow. So there's this very That's vibrant, yeah, very vibrant startup community that was being developed. Techstars was a part of it. It was not the only thing, but it was a part I'm of sure. it. I'm um, sure. We were having a lot of... Uh, it's hard to move to Boulder because Boulder, I mean, there's been, you know, movement to Boulder in the surrounds, but it's not a fast growing city because it's physically constrained in terms of the total population. Um, so there's a very interesting dynamic that happened, which is that Boulder and Denver as uh, adjoining communities really fed off each other. And, you know, some, some good examples of companies, you know, a public company called SendGrid, which started in Boulder, uh, another public company called Zeo, which started in Boulder, both of them expanded to Denver and their Denver offices, I think, were pretty quickly bigger than their Boulder offices, mm -hmm. even though they'd started in Boulder. And they really, you know, kind of those two communities were were reasonably well connected. What, what played out over time, and I really wrote about this in uh, my book in 2012, a book called Startup Communities, was this premise that you could start uh, create a startup community basically in any city that had at least 100,000 people. And I made the assertion that not only could you, but you needed to, that every city that was wanting to be long-term vibrant needed as part of the core of the city, it was not the only thing the city needed, but it needed a vibrant startup community. It needed this innovation activity, this company creation, Absolutely. all of these dynamics uh, to play out in a very significant way. And so I would say, you know, over the course, you know, in 2012, there was still the narrative that, you know, like if you're serious about starting a tech company, you should move to the Bay Area. Anybody else is not serious. And the whole unicorn language that started in 2013, a lot of that was, well, the unicorns are in the Bay Area. And of course, 10 years later, that's nonsense. Like, yeah. you know, I, if somebody says it today, they're not credible. But in 2012, it was still a kind of a credible statement. And my argument was, no, 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 no. Uh, entrepreneurship is going to be democratized, not just across the U.S., but globally. And that was happening at a very fast clip. And then I think COVID, um, you know, basically just took the snow globe and shook it. 
right? Because it's like, where do you want to live? You can live anywhere you want. Yeah. And, you know, you can imagine a, uh, the snow globe after you shake it. You know, it's got the snow, like, bouncing around everywhere. Yeah. But it eventually settles down. And a lot of people said, why am I living here? I don't want to live here. Or I'm working remote all the time. I can work somewhere else. And then you started to have this natural flow of people into other geographies, independent of where the employers were, that then unleashed, I think, this very powerful wave of people realizing, you know, we can really build very substantive businesses in different geographies because of the interconnectivity that we just leveraged living through and surviving COVID, mm -hmm. where we literally couldn't get together. We had to do everything remote. And there's advantages and disadvantages to remote versus in-person and hybrid. And, you know, people can argue and debate that shit all day long. Yeah. Um, but it's pretty, it's pretty undeniable that geography is no longer the same kind of constraint to entrepreneurship. And then the inverse of it is that you have these massive uh, uh, startup communities in different cities, whether it's a big city like Miami or a smaller city like Tampa that are growing very, very quickly. And, when we moved to Boulder, I said at the beginning of the story, I mean, Amy and I moved to Boulder and chose Boulder not because of a business opportunity, but we just chose a place to live. Mm -hmm. And I've had this long belief that you should choose where you want to live and build your life around it if you have the ability to do that. A lot of people don't. So yeah, I recognize sure. that's, no, that's, that's a good philosophy. But if you have the ability to choose where you want to live and then you build your life around it, you're going to have a much more powerful, more happy, more robust life than if you're living in a place that you feel like you have to live because of job, career, financial constraints, whatever. That, that's wonderful advice. That's wonderful advice. Yeah, what we saw in Florida, because we were so open, we saw people come here. Some of them returned, went back to New York, went back to California, but a lot of them stayed, uh, uh, both because remote work now, you can work from anywhere. Um, but I think a lot of them fell in love with Florida. They fell in love with our weather. They fell in love with the, the openness of Florida. They fell in love with the inclusiveness, the diversity, and, um, and some fell in love with the lack of taxes. <laughs> that too. So, oh, and, and look, those are all good. Like the, the neat thing about, and I think it's a very powerful thing about the U.S., is that you don't have to get a visa to move between states, right? You yeah. don't have to apply for citizenship in another state. You know, the, this notion that you can choose where to live and that the states have different characteristics based on, you know, both the the, the re natural resources of the geography, but also the political culture, the norms that get created within the state. Every state has positives. Every state has negatives. I grew up, again, in Dallas, Texas. There's lots of things about, you know, Texas that I like and lots of things about Texas that I don't like. Mm -hmm. And when you say, well, you know, do you like living in Colorado better than you like living in Texas? My answer is, yeah, totally. And well, well, is it the skiing? Is it the this? Is it the that? It's like, there's a long list of things. Uh -huh. And, you know, is there anything about Texas you like better in Colorado? Oh, yeah, totally. Right. So it, it allows, again, in the context of being an entrepreneur, uh, if we have the flex, if entrepreneurs have the flexibility to choose where they want to be based on their desires rather than, uh, you know, hey, if you want to be an entrepreneur, this is the only place to do it. I think that makes for so much more of a powerful. Oh, qu no question. And, and I'd, similar to your story, I mean, people used to, startups here used to th feel like they had to move to the Valley or they had to go to Boston. They don't do, now there's plenty of capital, there's talent. That's right. So it's, That's right. it's all been good. We're running out of time. I wanted to touch on your new book. You mentioned your previous book, Startup Community. Uh, tell us, you have a new book. Uh, tell us about that. Um, and, and what inspired you yeah, to write I that? I, 
I came out with a second edition of a book called Startup Boards that I wrote in 2013, came out with it last year. Um, and it's really about uh, how to, it's, it's aimed at an entrepreneur with the entrepreneur voice, but it's relevant for any investor or anyone who wants to be a board member or is a board member. And, you know, it's really a sort of hard won lessons from my own experience about how to build effective boards for startups. And um, I think it's particularly true uh, in 2023, uh, there was a lot of dynamics that played out in the last four or five years where the board dynamics, corporate governance, the way startups thought about boards, when boards got formed, how the boards were configured, the responsibilities of the boards vis-a-vis -vis management and the founders. Like there was a lot of, uh, I would say, hand wavy and laxness on that mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of lazy behavior. And, you know, there's plenty of problems that are emerging as a result of some of that. There's also a lot of situations where, you know, boards are very poorly configured. Um, I'm not a fan of venture venture uh, heavy boards. I think boards should be balanced between VCs and outside directors and founders, mm -hmm. even at early stages. And you know, the best line I've ever heard about a board was from Jeff Lawson, who is the founder of Twilio. Uh, and Jeff said, you know, I I view the board as as a second team. I get to uh, I get to have. I have my leadership team. And I get to build my leadership team and I get, you know, there, our goal is to build super productive uh, business, but I get this bonus team, which is the board. And yeah, the board can fire me. I totally get that. That's one of the responsibilities sure. or capabilities of the board. But as long as I have it, why not build another amazing team and really get the, the board to function as a team to help me build and grow uh, the company that I'm leading? And I, I, you know, I think applying that to how startups work, but doing it in a startup way that fits with startups versus just, you know, the way people think of public company boards or nonprofit boards. Like we tried to get underneath the skin of that uh, in a significant way. I'm really proud of the second edition. The first edition I was, was a, was an okay book, but I wasn't super proud of it. I felt like uh, uh, at the end, I was just pushing to get it done. Uh, and I was just struggling with the writing of it. And it's hard to write a book about boards and not have it be boring. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, but this book this book felt satisfying. Well, I will look forward to reading it. I'll pick up a copy, and I'm sure some of our uh, audience will as well. Okay, Thanks. lightning round. We're going to wrap up with uh, seven quick questions, just one or two two word answers. Uh, who's your role model, or do you have a role model? I like Einstein. Okay, favorite spot to hike in Colorado. Aspen. Favorite place to ski in Colorado. I don't ski anymore. Oh, Aspen. Aspen, too. Um, your favorite podcast? Uh, I am not a podcast listener um, because I learn by reading, not by listening. I know that's more than one answer. Hmm. No, uh, that's good. So, but, but, but I'm going to rec recommend two podcasts that I do listen to um, uh, periodically when I find uh, a person who I like being interviewed. One is Tim Ferriss's podcast. Yeah, that's good. Um, I've always been friends with Tim for a long time, but I always thought he was an incredible interviewer. And then uh, David Cohen and I do a podcast called Give First. And I, I say that really, David mostly does a podcast called Give First, and sometimes I host it. Um, but it's 30-minute uh, interviews with people around the Techstar system, and some of the episodes have been really, really excellent. Great. Favorite way to spend your downtime? Uh, a couple ways. Uh, I love to read. Uh, I love to run. Uh, and I love to hang out with my wife, Amy. Great. Uh, are we going into a recession in 2023? I don't even know what a recession is. I don't know what it means. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's looking backwards economic nonsense. Is 2023 going to be more murky 
uh, in terms of what things are. Yeah, it's going to be way more murky, but I, I have no idea how to even define a recession anymore. Brad, this has been great. Thank you so much. I'm sure our audience is going to love hearing this and, and uh, learning from you. That's a lot of what our podcast is about, is learning from other investors. And you're, you're obviously very experienced in a wealth of knowledge. I can't thank you enough for being on the show. For our listeners, if you're interested... I, 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 I want to ahead. answer my last question again, because some knucklehead that's listening or some smart person that's listening to say, that, that guy's so stupid, he doesn't even know how, how a recession is defined as. Oh, I, I totally know what a recession <laughs> is defined as. My point is, I think it's irrelevant in the context of entrepreneurship, because things are changing. If you cut the beginning of this, things are changing so quickly that by the time that we have the mathematical definitions of it, you know, your behavior as an entrepreneur will have to have changed so much anyway before that. Um, so I want to sort of answer yeah, tongue in cheek. That's how I took it. A lot of great companies were built in recessions, right? Or came out of recessions. So uh, for our listeners, if you're interested in getting more involved in Florida Funders, go out to floridafunders.com. Uh, if you're an entrepreneur, we have a way to apply for funding. Take you five or 10 minutes. You'll get in our process. If you're an investor, uh, we have companies out there that you can invest in and look at. And uh, we're happy to uh, to welcome you to our our, uh, our community of angel investors. So with that, sign off. Thanks again, Brad. Have a great day. Appreciate it. And uh, thank you. thanks again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for spending your time with Skin in the Game VC today. If you want to learn more about investing in early stage tech like a venture capitalist, be sure to visit the Florida Funders website at floridafunders.com. Join our angel network at no cost and get access to Florida Funders' VC-vetted investment opportunities in the next great breakout tech companies.